everyone, and welcome to this edition of the American Thoracic Society podcast. So excited to be here today. My name is Graham Carlos. I'm an associate professor of medicine and I'm an intensivist at the Indiana University School of Medicine. And I read a paper in the Annals of ATS recently entitled Critical Thinking and Critical Care Five Strategies to Improve Teaching and Learning in the Intensive Care Unit, authored by Dr. Molly Hayes, who I have here with me on the phone. And Molly and I know each other through our service in both the Education Committee at the ATS, and we also are members of the Section on Medical Education. So, uh, Molly, I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourself. Great. Thanks, Graham. So, I'm Molly Hayes. I'm an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a pulmonary and critical care attending at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. I'm really excited to be here and talk about this paper today. Absolutely, and Molly and I both share a passion not only for critical care, but also for teaching and education, and that's why we serve together, and that's why I read this paper that you wrote with avid interest. And uh, the first question I have for you today is, what inspired you to put this piece together? So I got excited about uh, critical thinking when I was a fellow, and one of my clinical preceptors gave me Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And after reading it, um, I was really inspired to think about critical thinking, especially how it relates to diagnostic error and patient harm. When I came on faculty at Beth Israel, I had the privilege of teaching a medical student elective using simulation as a means to teach critical thinking. And the students often told us that they only learn about critical thinking in their classes, in their pre-medical classes, or in this um, elective. And that really inspired Dr. Schwartzstein and I to create this framework and try to help people teach critical thinking in the ICU the way that we've been thinking about it and we've been teaching it. I got you. So you love critical stuff. You love critical care and you love critical thinking. So, exactly. <laughs> so what, how does critical thinking differ from, say, clinical reasoning? It's a great question. I think that it doesn't really differ. We just think about them differently. I actually think that critical thinking, which you know, is defined in many different ways by different people, but we sort of define it as the capacity to be deliberate about thinking and actively assess and regulate one's cognition. It's an important part of clinical reasoning. Clinical reasoning takes into account um, both cognitive and non-cognitive domains that allow us to come up with hypotheses and then treatment plans. I see, I see. So in your estimation, why is critical thinking so important uh, in the intensive care unit? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So the ICU is such a fast-paced environment that I think all of us can fall into sort of a pattern of just recognizing patterns and jumping to conclusions. I know for me, when I'm busy and have a lot of patients and there's a lot going on, you just sort of quickly jump to conclusions so you can come up with a plan and take care of a patient. And I'd say about 80% of the time, this works okay because a lot of what we do see is bread and butter. But for the 20% of the time, this isn't going to work and can actually cause patient harm. So being able to think critically allows you to kind of stop and pause and ask yourself, how am I thinking about this case? Or ask your team, how are we thinking about this case? And make sure that you can sort of regulate your own um, critical thinking and understand why you're making a diagnosis or why you're failing to make a diagnosis. Well, you've certainly inspired me to learn more about this. And in your paper, you talk about how it can be so important to prevent harm, for one thing, but also I'm seeing it's important just as we train the next generation of, you know, teachers and 
physicians to uh, hone in on diagnosis more quickly. It will reduce hospital length of stay and all those other good things that come with uh, making an accurate diagnosis. So with that being said, uh, help us learn more. What what are some key um, strategies? I think in the paper you defined five, if I remember correctly, but um, I was hoping you could go over those those strategies for us to help us uh, understand this critical thinking framework. Great, absolutely. So I think what you said, Graham, is an important point that we want to teach our learners how to think critically because we can't teach them all the facts. The facts are changing daily, and it's really easy now for our learners to, to Google whatever we ask them or, or whatever they don't know. So actually teaching them how to think critically, I think, is more important than teaching them facts. So that sort of late, goes into the first strategy, which is making the thinking process explicit. So this is actually asking them, you know, how did you arrive at this diagnosis and why did you arrive at this diagnosis, not simply what is the diagnosis. Part of this really relies on teaching them a little bit about um, dual process theory, the idea that the brain uses two thinking processes, type 1 and type 2, also known as system 1 and system 2. And people who've read Daniel Kahneman's book are familiar, are familiar with this because he talks a lot about this. So type 1 thinking is more in, the more intuitive process of decision-making, whereas type 2 is more analytical. And type 1 is that sort of immediate unconscious, and that's a hallmark of pattern recognition, where type 2 is deliberate and effortful. So being able to teach our learners, like, we arrived at this diagnosis because we were using type 1 pattern recognition, and, yep, everything fits, that's fine, is really important. And we also need to explain to them and show them when the type 1 thinking doesn't hold up, and, hmm, there are some things that don't fit in this pattern, so let's take a few more seconds and think about this, and let's look at the data, let's look at the evidence, what fits, what doesn't, maybe we need to come up with a different diagnosis, or maybe we need to get more evidence. So being able to make those thought processes explicit, I think, is really important, and it's a tangible strategy that you can teach in the ICU. Mm-hmm. The right next now, strategy... What I like to use from uh, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow in Kahneman's book is the difference between a, someone shooting from the hip versus a sharpshooter. So exactly. It's recognition pattern, almost reflexive response, versus yeah. taking your time, factoring in the wind, the setting, the distance, and really going through that thought process in a in a meaningful, almost systematic way, if you would. Exactly. And like I said, you know, 80% of the time, the pattern recognition probably will work, but 20% it won't. And especially in the ICU, that's really, really dangerous. And we need to pick up on those cases, and we need to know for ourselves and for our learners when the pattern recognition is not going to work. So the next strategy is discussing cognitive biases and de-biasing strategies. So a cognitive bias is a thought pattern that deviates from the typical way of decision-making or judging. There are over 100 that are described in the medical literature. We focus in our paper on six that we think are the most common, and I'll explain them briefly. So one that's really common is availability bias, which is judging things as more likely if they quickly and easily come to mind. So, for example, if a learner saw, you know, four cases of sepsis in the last 24 hours on call, then it's easy for them to think that the fifth admission is also sepsis. Next is confirmation bias, which is selectively seeking information to support rather than refute a diagnosis. And I think that we're all guilty of this. We find things that actually confirm our diagnosis instead of the pieces of data that refute it. Anchoring is a really common bias that we all use, and this is when we hook into salient aspects of a case early in the diagnostic workup. 
This can lead to diagnostic momentum, which is attaching labels to patients and not revisiting them. This is especially important in the ICU because I don't know about your hospital, but for us, we get patients who come from the emergency department or the floor with a diagnosis already. And we have to actually stop and say, is that the correct diagnosis? Are we going to continue that sort of workup and treatment plan, or should we think more about this? And premature closure um, is also can be part of this, and that's fi finalizing a diagnosis without full confirmation. The last of the six biases that we discuss in the paper is the framing effect, and this is presenting a case in a specific way to influence the diagnosis. I think in the ICU, our learners do this to us as the attendings, and we can often do this to um, consultants when we're trying to look for a particular answer. And sometimes it can be helpful, but it can also be harmful. So our strategy is actually making these biases explicit, calling them by name, calling them out, and knowing when they're helpful and harmful, and teaching our learners about them. Maybe pausing and saying, let's just stop. Let's make sure that we're not anchoring on this diagnosis. Or let's stop and make sure that we don't think it's sepsis just because it's availability bias and our last four patients had sepsis. That sounds great. In fact, in your paper, you talked about some ways that we can counter, and one of those ways you mentioned is when you're talking with your resident or learner, asking them, you know, how are we thinking about this case as a way to set up the discussion. And so I put this to the test, Molly. Um, last week I was on call, and I called the team to check in about 6, 6.30 at night to see uh, if there were any new admissions in the last few hours and to kind of hear who they were and what was going on. So the resident picks up the phone, and I say, hey, do we have any new admissions? And she says, yeah, as a matter of fact, we had one new one come in, pretty straightforward, lower extremity edema, it's been out of their diuretics, and, you know, that has a really good story for a CHF exacerbation, needing some CPAP in the emergency department when they called us to admit to the ICU. And so I stopped, and I asked her, I said, so tell me, uh, how, how, are you, how are we thinking about this case? In other words, what are the things that are going into, you know, making up uh, the decisions that we're making that this is, in fact, a CHF exacerbation? And she paused for a minute, and she said, hmm, how are we thinking about the case? Well, I hope we're thinking right about the case. <laughs> so uh, I think she was misinterpreting the actual thought process and the how versus, you know, a judgment on are we right or are we wrong. Uh, in addition to asking and causing learners to stop and pause and think more reflectively, more system two about the, uh, the diagnosis, are there any other debiasing strategies that you can think of that may uh, help us guide our learners to think properly? Yeah, so the one you already mentioned, this big one is, sort of what I like to call group metacognition. So metacognition means thinking about how you're thinking, but to do group metacognition, just stopping and saying, how are we thinking about this? And trying to push the learners to tell you more about their thought processes and tell you what fits and what doesn't fit. Other strategies, um, one big one is to simply slow down. Like we are in the ICU and patients are critically ill, but we do have a few more seconds than we think to just pause and think about this. Make sure this is truly septic shock and not cardiogenic shock. Just slow down for a second and make sure that all the evidence fits. Some other strategies are to encourage learners to really create broad differentials. We're trying to move away from saying a um, diagnoses and differentials into hypotheses, so I'd say create more broad hypotheses. Um, other strategies are to consider alternative hypotheses. So yes, I think it's this and this and this, but it also could be this. 
and here's why or here's not, so that you kind of relieve them of that need to put their money down and allow them to sort of tell you about their uncertainty and to admit that. And I think we as attendings need to also admit that there's often times that we're uncertain too, and that's actually okay because when we all admit that and are open about it, I think that leads to less error. And then certainly giving them some feedback. Uh, in, in order to do that, all of us educators need to become equipped uh, with not only the ways we can be biased, but on these strategies that you're mentioning so that we can kind of pause the learner and let them know, hey, I think you kind of committed to this diagnosis a little too quickly uh, or maybe even stretched them out in terms of their differentials. So I think this piece that you wrote is really going to move the needle forward uh, to advance our understanding um, nationally and internationally. So I'm so thankful that you wrote it. Um, now, if I'm going to put my kind of critical hat on about your critical thinking skills, uh, it, it would strike me as difficult to achieve in the fast-paced, you know, environment of the ICU. You've got different levels of learners, be it students, residents, fellows, who will have different uh, backgrounds and knowledge levels. So do you have any um, advice about, you know, that how we can make this efficient uh, or any uh, recommendations about how we can implement this uh, in the, the diverse environment that is the academic ICU. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is a lot of criticism that we get from this paper is that teaching critical thinking is difficult and it takes a lot of time, so it doesn't have a, any place in the ICU. But I would disagree with that. So, I, you know, I think in the paper we outline our five strategies which, as we talked about, most of them are making the thinking process explicit, discussing cognitive biases and debiasing strategies, modeling and teaching inductive reasoning, using questions to stimulate critical thinking, and then assess your learner, assessing your learner's critical thinking skills. So what I would say is that, you know, if people want to try this out, don't try all five strategies. Choose one at a time. Maybe pick one a day or even one a week or even one every service block that you do and just try it out. This time I'm going to really focus on teaching about biases and debiasing strategies. And the first step is just, you know, naming the bias and stopping the group and using this group metacognition. How are we thinking about this? Are we anchoring? Let's make sure we're not. Another easy one to try um, is a strategy four in our paper, which is using questions to stimulate critical thinking. I think it's really hard to ask effective questions. I think most of us, I know I am, are guilty of asking the quiz show questions or the what is you know, kind of pure memorization questions, which as we talked about at the beginning, our learners can Google that probably faster than we can even finish the question. So Our really phone, just, yeah. yeah, exactly. So even asking them, you know, not just what, but more of these how and why questions to really assess their learning and their understanding of the case and the diagnosis, it really pushes them. So you're not just scratching the surface, but you really sort of get a window into their thinking process, and it stimulates critical thinking. You're allowing them to, you know, think critically and express their uncertainty if there is any uncertainty, which is ultimately helpful for the patient. So I think that, you know, you can do this if you just pick, you know, one strategy and try it out and get feedback from your learners. Did this work? Did it not? How can I, you know, do it differently next time? Another thing I think it's important to mention is that I think that there's a myth out there, especially after Kahneman's book, that one way of thinking is fast and one way is slow, because that was the title of his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. However, although type 1 is fast, type 2 is not hours. It's a few more seconds than type 1. 
So, you know, we do have time. Even in the ICU, it's the difference between two seconds and maybe 10 or 15 seconds. But taking those extra seconds to make sure that you have the right diagnosis is really important. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm confessing right now to you and to the world at large that I am also guilty of being a pimper. Um, and you have inspired me to change my ways. And uh, one thing that was a takeaway for me, it's really something I've tried to anchor on, is eliminating the what questions, like you said, of what is Cushing's triad, and getting to the why and the how. Why is this patient hypertensive and bradycardic? You know, um, how do we think about uh, elevated BUN and creatinine in this particular patient? And those key words really change the conversation. They tip it towards the type 2 thinking. And uh, and my yeah. experience has been, much like you said, that this isn't hours. Uh, this can be minutes. And as with anything, practice makes perfect. So I think as educators, the more we're in, uh, in tune with this and the more we uh, seek to educate learners using these methods, uh, the better off everybody's going to be. I loved your quote at the end of the paper. It was from Albert Einstein. And he wrote, education is not the learning of facts, but the training of the mind to think, the training of the mind to think. And as educators, that is really what we're about, uh, getting people to think rightly. Uh, And so I'm just so grateful for you to bring this concept to the forefront and uh, publish this paper. Um, I saw there were a couple other co-authors with you. Can you talk about them a little bit before we... uh, we finish up? Sure, yeah. So, um, Sylvic Chatterjee is a fellow at Johns Hopkins and the NIH who is also very interested in critical thinking and did a great grand rounds um, at Johns Hopkins on critical thinking. And then my mentor, Rich Schwartzstein, who's here at Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess with me, um, has done a lot of work on critical thinking. And he and I have um, done a few projects together and are actually currently doing a project to try to define critical thinking across different professional schools, which has been really interesting. So I'm grateful to both of them for all their help and inspiration with this paper. Folks that are interested in this have probably already tuned into this podcast, and they may well have read or have on the docket to read Kahneman's book. Do you have any other recommendations for study if anybody that may be interested in this field and wanting to learn more? Yeah, so we have um, a couple great references um, in our reference list. So one big one that I would recommend um, is the Milestones of Critical Thinking, which is a developmental model for medicine and nursing, which was in academic medicine in 2014. I think like anything in education, all of us are struggling with, okay, if we're going to teach this, then how do we assess it? And we present that very briefly in the paper as our last strategy, but I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done on this. But starting with um, this paper, which is sort of the first one that came out to put this sort of in a milestone framework, I think is really important. Um, That's the way that I would start there. Uh, Also, Crossgary has a lot of um, literature on this. He's sort of the big name in the field. Um, He's an emergency medicine physician, so has written a lot about this. And um, people who've read the paper have probably seen we cite him a lot, but he has multiple, multiple papers on this. So reading anything by him for people who are interested, I think, will get them well on their way to understanding critical thinking. Well, my, thank you so much. You uh, you speak as well as you write, and uh, that's a big compliment. So I'm looking forward to hanging out <laughs> with you next month in D.C. at the International Conference and um, talking to you more about the, these concepts and your future endeavors here, looking to go 
across disciplines. That, that sounds like a fantastic uh, idea. I'm looking forward to seeing what you have to say about that. So once again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thanks to everyone in our ATS community that's listened to the podcast. Uh, our information is available there on the website. Uh, Molly's information and email is included on in our paper, which, again, is in the Annals of ATS uh, Medical Education Edition. Uh, so once again, thank you all. And Molly, thanks again. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure to do this. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. See you.